Well, we are uh, moving back into our series now in the Gospel of Mark. So we've just been going through Advent, and now we're going to just like fast forward through all of Jesus' life and come to the Passion. Um, and maybe that's a little bit of a, a, a disjunct, right? You, we've just celebrated his birth, and now all of a sudden we're moving to, to look at his death and his, his, his uh, resurrection. Um, but it, it's a bit like Philippians 2, which we looked at earlier, right? Uh, when, we, when we put it all together, it clarifies for us the purpose of his coming, right? He didn't consider equality a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he made himself nothing. He took on the, our flesh, he took on the form of a servant, and he died that we might have life. It clarifies. He came to die, to rise again. And this afternoon, we're going to be particularly looking at the preparations that are being made for his death, in particular, the anointing for burial by a woman. We'll look at who this woman is in a minute, but uh, that's what we're going to be looking at, this anointing that he receives in that week leading up to his death. So with that, let's turn to the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 14. We're going to look at the first 11 uh, verses, and Mark 14, uh, 1 to 11. Just as a reminder, uh, it's printed for you in the bulletin, uh, but you can also follow along in your Bibles as well. Mark 14, 1 to 11. Let's hear God's Word. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was that ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing. She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, I ask that your spirit would be present, that you would take your word, you would apply it to our hearts and into our lives. We ask this through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, here we are after Christmas. All the anticipation is done. And maybe there's a little bit of malaise. I don't know. If, maybe. Maybe. For, for me, that's, that's how it goes, right? It is an affliction that some of us get when all the hubbub is over. And we have our toys and our baubles. And yet we don't feel quite well. Um, 
and I, you know, and I'm not talking about well in terms of COVID, right? Like I, maybe some of you are sick physically. I'm talking about, I, I'm not even talking about that you've eaten too many Christmas cookies. Some of you, that may be the case. You don't feel well because you've eaten too many sweets. But I'm talking about something else, a feeling like being let down. And I'm not talking about the letdown from the lack of gifts. In fact, I would argue that oftentimes, sometimes even the more gifts you get, the more there is a letdown. The greater the malaise. Maybe it's just me. Maybe you're not like me. Maybe you're still uh, excited and you're still uh, rejoicing over everything and you are happy. I don't know. I, 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 for me anyway, I feel this malaise. And, and if you don't, if you are one of those who are completely content, I have to admit, I have a little bit of envy. I have a little bit of envy that you feel that. And I was thinking about this, and I was trying to decide, what is it? What is the reason for the letdown? Why do I feel this kind of malaise after Christmas? And, and I would say it's not just because of this year. I mean, this year has its own unique challenges, right? We live in this COVID moment, and a lot of us didn't get to go visit our family or to have our family come visit us. It was smaller gatherings. There was already a little bit of a negativity to it, but it's not something new. It's something that I've experienced year in and year out and that I've observed in others. Why? A pinpoint. Why is that? What is that feeling? Now, I know I sound a little grinchy right now. The truth is, in moments of clarity, I do have joy as I reflect on Christ and his, his coming to earth, and I, and I remind myself of the life that I have through him. I certainly is punctuated by that joy and that, that deep, seated contentment that I have knowing him. But oftentimes there is that little niggling, huh, just doesn't feel quite right. It's a lingering malaise. Maybe you know that. What is it? Where does it arise from? And as we move through our text this afternoon, I think we can see a similar discontentment, a similar malaise. It's a malady that goes all the way back to the fall to Adam and Eve in the garden. And it is that, that desire for something that we can't quite put our fingers on, that desire for something more, something that will satisfy us, something that we want. In fact, a lot of it is there's a deep desire that we want everything. <laughs> there's always something that we don't have that we desire more of. And I want to explore this discontentment together. I want us to think about it. But in our text, there's something else. On the other hand, there is this woman. That she has a deep satisfaction and contentment that enables her to express, not in words, but in actions, all for Jesus, all for Jesus. How is she able to do that? What is that deep contentment and satisfaction that we see in this woman? I think in there is the antidote for our malady. And my hope is today that as we look at her, as we see her love for Jesus, and as we look at Jesus, that we too will sing with her. All for Jesus. All 
for Jesus. And I'm going to look at this just in two parts. The discontentment and the contentment, if you will. The all for me and the all for Jesus, which I really think is the divide, right? All for me and all for Jesus. Those two points. All for me, the first one. This is a cry that humanity had after the fall. This is the cry of Adam when he was tempted in the garden. And we see it in our text to varying degrees, right? I want us to look at this. In the very first part of the text, we see it in the persons of the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes. We see this desire, this all-for-me desire. Here they are. They were figuring out how to stealthily arrest Jesus so as not to have a riot on their hands. It's the middle of the, the religious feast of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it was this huge influx into the city of Jerusalem. And a lot of the people that were coming into Jerusalem were followers of Jesus or were very intrigued by him. And so they knew that if they were to go out and publicly arrest Jesus and drag him away, that there would be a riot on their hands. And they were trying to avoid that. Of course, their desire to get Jesus, this has been the design all through the Gospel of Mark. We'll remind ourselves, if we go all the way back even to chapter 3 of the Gospel of Mark, it was Jesus had just healed a, a, a man with a crippled hand, uh, and the Pharisees afterwards say, that it says of the Pharisees that they went out and immediately held counsel together with the Herodians against Jesus, considering how to destroy him. All the way back at the very beginning, this, is, this has been a theme that we have seen over and over again. And the question is, why did they hate Jesus so much? Why? Well, I think on the outside, there is, of course, that, that real anger. They thought he was a blasphemer, right? They thought that he was somebody who was claiming to be the Christ, claiming to be God, and that he was not, in fact, God, and therefore, as a blasphemer, he didn't deserve to live. That was, at, the, at least on the surface of it all, uh, someone who claimed to have the power of God and to be God himself, and so they wanted to destroy him. But, it, but that kind of pushes us deeper and to ask another question. Why is it that they could not see Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God? Why couldn't they see him for who he is? It sort of presses in on this issue of discontentment a little bit. I want, I want us to think about this. They desired, I think, and believed that they were the ones who would bring about God's kingdom on earth. They were the religious leaders who were leading God's people into this, this perfect state where then God would bless them and rid them of Rome and they would become a nation and usher in God's kingdom. They viewed themselves as the religious elite, as the leaders, as those who deserved God's favor for all their obedience, for all their work. They were the ones who were the righteous and the good. They wanted to be recognized for that, their position, and they wanted people to follow them and to listen to them, and they wanted people to obey them. Because why? Well, they were men of God. And what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus comes and he challenges that, that. He challenges them over and over again. He pointed to people's need. 
He pointed to everyone's need to repent and and to see Jesus as the Messiah and their deliverer and their savior. And over and over again, he said, I have come to set you free. And that includes you, religious leaders. He showed them over and over again the corruption in their hearts. And at that moment, I think the religious leaders had an opportunity. They could have bent their knee and bowed. They could have been like Nicodemus and gone late and even gone to Jesus and said, how can we enter the kingdom of God? Well, you must be born again. We don't know what happened to Nicodemus, but I like to think he came to faith. Maybe, I'm not sure. But the other Pharisees could have done this. The other religious leaders could have done this. They didn't. They doubled down on their desire to have it all for themselves. All the glory, all the power, all the authority, all the prestige. And Jesus just exposes it. He says, you know, you are whitewashed tombs. You are like this fig tree that doesn't bear fruit. Cursed. And how do they respond? They seek his destruction. Yesterday, my family watched uh, that new Wonder Woman movie. It's a typical superhero movie. Uh, It has villains. It has heroes, uh, some who are super. And, um, you know, like a lot of typical superhero movies, it was sort of good versus bad. And you have that dynamic going on. But one of the things, the interesting things about the movie that really struck me was that the villains were not just a few bad guys. There were those. There were the really bad villains. But the bad villains, what they did, and I don't want to disrupt the whole movie for you if you go to see it, so I'll I'll be very vague in general, but what they did is that they, they, they garnered power by tapping into the selfish desires of all of humanity. And the more selfishness that the humanity came out, the more power they got, the more destruction they could do, and et cetera, et cetera. And you'll have to watch the movie to figure out that, the rest of the story. But selfish desire was the evil power. And I thought, yes, that's right. They got, they got something right. It's the root of our sin. The desire to have it all discontentment in its grossest form seeks to destroy God and set ourselves up as God so that we might have it all. You know, I think it can be somewhat difficult for us to identify ourselves with the religious leaders. They're such foils, right? They're so bad in Scripture that we're like, oh, they're really bad. They're they're so self-oriented and they're over-the-top evil. But I think we need to be honest with ourselves. Apart from God's grace, we all approach God in rebellion, seeking to usurp and destroy him. This is the trajectory of all of humanity. Paul says it well in Romans 1 when he says that we all suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. Though we knew God, we don't honor him as God, nor give thanks to him. Why? Because we want it all. Our cry is, all for me, all for me. And so when we don't get what we want, we grumble, and we complain, and we blame. We blame God particularly for our lack. 
We see this in the religious leaders. But we also see it in Judas here in the text. For Judas, it was a bit different from the religious leaders. We don't have much detail on Judas in Scripture. We have some. Um, Throughout the Gospel accounts, he's always referred to as the one who betrays Jesus. So if you see Judas Iscariot, it's always in parentheses next to his name, the one who betrays Jesus. That's his moniker. But in the Gospel of John, in the parallel account to what we have here, in John chapter 12, Judas is the one who speaks out against the waste of this ointment that this woman pours over Jesus' head. Judas is the one. In in the Gospel of Mark, it just says there were some who said, and we'll come to those some in a minute, but but in, in the Gospel of John, Judas particularly is highlighted as the one who complains. Who is the woman? In John, we learn that this woman is actually Mary. Which Mary? That's always the question. She is Mary, Martha's sister, and Lazarus's sister. And I want to come back to that in a minute, but I just want us to, to keep that in the back of our minds. This Mary, she was the one who poured the nard out on both Jesus' head, and in the Gospel of John, it's as if this this bottle, this alabaster jar, to open it, the only way to open it was to break it off. And once you've broken it, it's open. And you, she pours it over his head. And in the Gospel of John, she pours it on his feet and wipes the feet with her hair. And Judas says in John, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Right? 300 denarii it was a, a year's worth of a laborer's wages. So it was like, the entire salary for a laborer for a year is a lot of money. A lot of good can be done with that, right? But John tells us a little bit more about Judas's character. In chapter 12, verse 6, John says, He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Strong words. Because he was a, a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself. So he was the one who was in charge of the money, and then he would take his cut. He was a thief. You see, for Judas, the discontentment was with stuff. What is it to be a thief? Well, to be a thief is to take what doesn't belong to you. It's to take what isn't yours. But that sin of being a thief begins in the heart, doesn't it? It begins with that same lie that we've already looked at. I deserve more. I deserve better. It's not fair that others have what I don't have. I'm going to take from them because I deserve it. Ultimately, it's a resentment against the provision of God. That that issue of the heart doesn't always lead to thievery, does it? Some people may be prone to that. Well, I didn't get what I deserve. I'll just take a little for myself. But for a lot of us, I think it sometimes leads to other things, covetousness, resentment towards others. Sometimes it just plays it out in the typical old American way of keeping up with the Joneses. Well, they have it. I I guess I got to go get it. I got to look like them. I can't be on the outside. I deserve it all. For Judas, it seems that this extravagant gift of Mary was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. From this point on, he goes out, right? He goes out and he goes to those chief priests and says, I'll betray Jesus. 
In truth, this is a response that is not that uncommon to not getting what we want. We're not getting what we think we deserve. It's funny how much we'll excuse our actions along these lines. Well, it's not fair. Or if God really loved me, he'd have given me X, Y, or Z anyway. Well, if God won't give me what I want, I'll just go and get it for myself. And that's oftentimes our response when we don't get what we want. Yeah, we don't say those things out loud, right? But it's part of that justification for indulging our covetous desires and our discontentment. And it's because deep down we want it all for ourselves. There's a third discontentment here, and then I'm going to move on to the good stuff. Spending a lot of time here. There's a third discontentment here. It's the discontentment of the disciples in general. Mark doesn't highlight Judas. We don't see Judas's name until verse 10, but he does, and he doesn't highlight it here in the text. He just says simply that some who said to themselves, meaning more than just Judas, it wasn't just Judas who was greedy, but it was possible that those who truly believed that what Mary did was a waste, there's some that could have thought, this is wasteful. This isn't godly to go and take this really expensive thing and to, to break the jar, and so they scold her. Now, it was, to put a little context here, it was the custom at this time during the Passover feast to take up alms for the poor and to go out. So if you were somebody who had a concern for the poor, you might look at this and say, that, that's extraordinarily wasteful. We could have done a lot of good. This could have been a boon for those in the community. If she hadn't just broken this jar. You, you, see the, you can see the rationale there for the disciples. But I think that there's still discontentment here. That is akin to Judas's discontentment. And it's akin, akin to the religious leader's discontentment. It may not be to the same degree, but it is of the same substance. You see, they did not grasp what Mary was doing because they were still thinking more about themselves, about how they would be perceived. I mean, imagine, what if word got out that they had this year's worth of wages that they just spilled on the floor? Here they were. They were in Jerusalem. This was time for Jesus to shine. And now we have this public relations disaster. If this gets out to the public, what would people think? How would it reflect on them? How would it reflect on Jesus? Their discontentment came with wanting to be well-received there was still a part of them that was focused on themselves. And this, of course, is a more subtle form of selfishness, the kind I think that as believers we're very familiar with. We want to be well thought of by one another, right? We want people to look up to us, to see us as good people, as upstanding citizens. And this is really common among all people, not just Christians. It's why we even have the term virtue, virtue signaling, right? We, we want a virtue signal, because we want you to understand, well, I'm like you. I'm a good person like you. I have these qualities like you, and I want to show you my virtue. It's why we post our best front on Facebook and Instagram. It's why we want people to admire us. 
You see, when our social standing is threatened, when people start to get a glimpse behind the curtain, or even when it's just a perception and not even a reality, we get upset. (laughs) Maybe especially, have you ever thought about this? Especially when you are being falsely maligned, falsely sort of characterized, you become even more angry and upset. Part of that is just, right? Like, well, this is not who I am. But it's like we cannot handle people thinking poor of us. I, hey, I'm, I'm a good person. I care about the poor people. That's how I want to be known. This woman was making them look bad. Do you see how easily it is, easy it is for us to focus in on ourselves, to look at ourselves, what we have, what we don't have, what we want. It's because we are not satisfied with Christ. There is some level of dissatisfaction. And this is my second point, my conclusion, that I want us to look at the the all-satisfying wonder of Jesus, all for Jesus. What What does it mean to be consumed with him? We have here an unnamed woman, John points out that she is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. You'll remember in the Gospel of John, actually just before this account, there was a major issue in the family. Lazarus was sick. In fact, Lazarus dies, and Jesus doesn't come right away. You'll remember, Lazarus is buried in a tomb, and he's he's put in the grave, and there is mourning and grief and sadness, and Jesus comes to the scene. And Martha comes and greets Jesus and cries out and asks all sorts of questions, and Jesus talks with her. But Mary, Mary stays in the house. Mary doesn't come out to see Jesus. I think she was upset with him a little bit. In fact, she says as much. After all, when Jesus calls her out of the house and Mary comes to him, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would still be alive. Now, there's all sorts of things going on here. There's grief. There's pain. There's faith. She believes Jesus had the power. But there's a little bit of discontentment even with Mary. But I want to suggest to you that I think that there's some discontentment that is better than other discontentment. Some discontentment is actually righteous discontentment. Yes, she might have been upset, had a bit of discontentment that Jesus wasn't there, didn't give her what she wanted, which was the healing of her brother. But there was another piece of discontentment that that attends to every single death that we face in our families. And that is that anger at death itself. Death had taken her brother. She was discontent that it is where all life leads. It leads to the grave. There should be in all of us a discontentment with that. Yeah, she believed that Jesus could have healed her brother if he had come sooner. But there is a righteous discontentment with the brokenness that is in the world. You see, I think that part of our malaise at Christmas, part of our discontentment is not selfish. But it's a longing for the broken things of this world to be made right. 
You see, no matter how hard we try to find joy and contentment, whether it's in our families or in our holiday experiences or in our stuff that we get or in our whatever vocation, all those areas that we look for contentment, they never satisfy because of the, the pull of sin, because of the effects of the fall, because of the curse. No matter how hard we try, there's always a taste of bitterness that reminds us that we rightly long for something more. Death brings this out of us. In that moment with Mary, Jesus weeps with her. That's all he does. He doesn't really talk much to Mary. He talks a little more to Martha. But to Mary, he just weeps alongside of her. Why? Because Jesus was discontent with the fall. That's why he came. He is teaching Mary and Martha that that is why he came. Before he called Lazarus out of the womb, out of the tomb, he said to Martha, and presumably Mary was there, did I not tell that you that if you believed in me, you would see the glory of God? This is why I've come, to raise the dead. And what does he do? He calls Lazarus out of that tomb. Lazarus comes to life. And in that moment, Mary and Martha beheld Jesus as the resurrection and the life. They realized in that moment they had all, for they had Jesus. And it was just after that, they, Jesus, Mary, when Jesus is in Bethany in that house of Simon the leper, that Mary comes and she takes what she had was the most expensive thing that she owned. And she said, I, 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 this, is, this is my everything. This is my all. Lord, it's for you. And she breaks the jar over his head. Mary was overcome with Jesus, with his love, with his grace, with his power. Mary was overcome with love for Jesus. She poured it all over him. She gave all for her king, her Lord. Her Savior. Jesus chides the disciples for their rebuke and says that she has done a beautiful thing. And it's beautiful for two reasons. One, because she did better than she knew. She prepared his body for burial. It's interesting that when Lazarus's tomb was opened, what came out first? The stench, the smell of death, it's interesting because Mary had that bottle of alabaster, that alabaster bottle full of nard that if she had taken and broken over Lazarus when he died, that maybe that stench wouldn't have been so bad, but it still would have been there. She didn't. Instead, she prepared Jesus' body with it. You see, death stinks, it smells. But she uses it on Jesus. She prepares his body, a body that would die, but one that would give not an aroma of death, but of life. Death stinks, but the death of Jesus means life for you and me. Mary knew this, and she was in awe of Jesus because of it. This gift of pure nard was beautiful because it was prepared, it prepared Jesus for that life-giving death. But it was beautiful for a second reason. Because Mary honored Jesus as Lord of all. 
It's beautiful because it portrays that, that, that all-encompassing love that Mary had for Jesus. She offered him everything she had. She cried in that action, all for Jesus, all for Jesus. And that is the response of love and faith that finds its deepest satisfaction in him. Her extravagant gift ought cause us to pause and ask, where lies in my discontentment? Sure, we should be discontent at the grave with sin, with our constant selfishness, with the brokenness of the world and the malaise of our hearts. We should be discontent with that. But we ought to look at Jesus and find wonder and satisfaction of knowing him and of being known by him the wonders of his grace that are poured out for us on the cross. For me, for a selfish, discontented sinner like me, forgiven. Not only forgiven, but we, we know him and have him as our own. In those words, I am my beloved's and he is mine. When we start to see that, the discontentment and selfishness fade away, and we begin to sing, all for Jesus, all for Jesus. All my being's ransom powers, all my thoughts and words and doings, all my days and all my hours, all for Jesus, all for Jesus. Worldlings prize their gems of beauty, cling to gilded toys of dust, boast of wealth and fame and pleasure. Only Jesus will I trust. All for Jesus. All for Jesus. Only Jesus will I trust. Let's pray.